Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, we are in uh, Acts chapter 2 as we're working our way through the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, uh, go ahead. If you don't have a Bible, we do have a couple we could loan to you. So uh, if you need one, just uh, you raise your hand. We'll see. Somebody will get you one. Anybody need a Bible? No. All right. Acts chapter 2. And uh, beginning with verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And now, I just want to stop there for a moment because in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the priests, what the priests do. And, and really what he's encompassing is all the, all the things that the Jewish people did as part of the old covenant. And the writer of Hebrews says that those things were a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So you could look at the priest's clothing, you could look at the festivals, you could look at, you could look at uh, the tabernacle itself, even the furniture in the tabernacle, and all of that foreshadowed a heavenly truth. And the Feast of Pentecost was no different. It foreshadowed a heavenly truth. What was the Feast of Pentecost? Well, it's also known in the Old Testament as the Feast of Weeks. So if you, if you come across that, in Exodus, we don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 34, 22, if you're taking notes, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 to 21, and Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 through 12, those passages deal with the Feast of Weeks, or as we know it in our vernacular, the Day of Pentecost. It was an annual one-day harvest festival. It was counted 50 days after Passover. And what it was, was it was celebrating the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Uh, during that celebration, there were sacrifices that are prescribed. Those are in, I believe it's in Leviticus uh, chapter 23. It talks about the different sacrifices that would be made. As the Lord blessed people, they would be able to bring a free will offering uh, to the Lord at that time. Um, it was a celebration for Jews, for males, for females, uh, for uh, masters and even slaves, men servants and maid servants, um, even the fatherless. So if you were an orphan in that, in that day and age, you were invited to this celebration. Uh, even uh, widows as well, not even widows, but widows as well. Um, even strangers. So if you were a stranger, whoever dwelt in Israel, they were invited to this, uh, this feast, this one-day celebration. And part of the celebration, which is kind of interesting, because you know the Jewish people, like when they celebrate Passover, they have to go in into their, into their dwelling places, their homes or tents, whatever it was at that time, and they'd have to look and get any leaven that was in the house out, because there was to be no leaven. During, that, during the Passover celebration. Well, in Pentecost, they're to bake two loaves of bread with leaven. Go figure. Well, again, it was a foreshadowing of a heavenly truth. Pentecost foreshadowed the birth of the church 
by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It was the first fruits that we're going to read about this morning, the first fruits of a global harvest that would go down through the ages for both Jews and Gentiles. And that two loaves of bread made with leaven, it, what, it, what it symbolized, what it pictured was the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers all coming together in one church, the church of God. Well, let's continue here with verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. You'll notice that it said the sound as of a mighty rushing wind. Don't say it was a mighty rushing wind. It was a sound. It sounded, it's like, what is that sound? It sounds like a mighty rushing wind. And then they observed divided tongues of fire, or it, as of fire. It wasn't actual fire. It was as of fire on the individuals. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, uh, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya uh, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So it says there that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And as I mentioned earlier, the sound that they heard, the people that heard that they rushed to where this was occurring, was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind, and the divided tongues were as of fire. Now, this is not a reoccurring event in scriptures. While we see it here on the day of Pentecost, the sound as of the mighty rushing wind and the, and the divided tongues as of fire, we don't see it any other time in the book of Acts. The apostles never expound on the phenomenon. We can safely say that this was an isolated one-time manifest, manifestation of the Holy Spirit in this particular way. I'm speaking about the tongues of fire and the mighty rushing wind or what appeared to be or what sounded like. It's interesting because when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said this in John 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It just, it just struck me as interesting that Jesus said this and, and this sound as of a mighty rushing wind was unique to this particular day. The divided tongues as a fire to me seems to speak of the distribution of one spirit upon all believers. You know, it's one thing that's kind of, kind of cool when I do counseling with somebody, a believer, a believer. If it's, if it's an unbeliever, that, that's a different story. But when I'm speaking with a, with, a, with a believer, it's one thing I can always mention or I can always trust is that they have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in them that I have. And a lot of times I'll be praying that the Holy Spirit will just reveal to them 
what they need to know or, or what they need to do or whatever. But the manifestation of the Spirit in this way, in this particular way, was unique to this day. To this day as far as Pentecost I'm speaking about. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Um, the supernatural gift of tongues that we're going to be looking at this morning, it is a reoccurring event in the book of Acts. We'll see it in Acts chapter 10. Jesus did talk about it in Mark chapter 16, verse 17. He said, And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, and they will speak with new tongues. Now, I just want to put a little asterisk there, because in some of your Bibles, it might say, if you were looking in Mark chapter 16, uh, beginning with verse 9 through 20, it might have a footnote that says, in some of the earlier, this is not in some of the earliest Greek manuscripts. And so some people get to the conclusion, well, this wasn't what Jesus said. Some translator or somebody, some copyist just added that in there. Many Christian writers of that day and age referred to this passage in their writings, which shows that the early Christians knew it was there and they accepted it. And I'm going to just give you a few examples. I'm not a smart historian, so I actually pulled this out of a commentary. So you can think, wow, he's really, man, it's awesome. Don't, don't think that way. Papias refers to Mark chapter 16, verse 18, and he wrote around A.D. 100. Justin Martyr's first apology quotes Mark chapter 16, verse 20. He wrote that in A.D. 151. Irenaeus, in his writing against heresies, quotes Mark 16, verse 13, and he remarks on it uh, back in the day of uh, A.D. 180. Hippolytus, or Hippolytus, I don't know how you pronounce his name, in Peri Charismaton quotes... Mark 16, verses 18 through 19, in his homily on the heresy of Noetus. You guys have probably all read that, I'm sure. Um, he refers to that. And he was the bishop of Portus, AD 190 to 227. Uh, Vicentius, another guy you guys probably uh, know all about. Bishop of Thabari, he quotes two of the verses in the Seventh Council of Carthage. Um, and uh, anyways, I could keep going on here. There's a few more. The bottom line that I'm trying to get across is the overwhelming majority of ancient manuscripts do include this passage. So you could say, well, did Jesus actually say, speak about the, these tongues or not? Um, you could debate it, I guess. You know, there's scholars on probably on both sides of that. However, and I like this part, we also see it, like I mentioned, in Acts chapter 10. So this was not an isolated situation and on top of that paul expounds on the gift of tongues in first corinthians 12 and first corinthians chapter 14 so is the gift of speaking in tongues a scripturally supported practice my opinion i believe so it is now there's a couple misunderstandings about that i believe about the gift or regarding the gift of tongues and the first misunderstanding goes like this. The miraculous gifts, like tongues, ceased with the apostles. And the argument that I've come across regarding that is based on 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. That's the love chapter, if you don't know, familiar with that. But it starts out and says in verse 8, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. The question is, what are they referring to? What is Paul referring to? That which is perfect has come. And I've heard this argument that people say, well, that is the completion of the New Testament scriptures. And that's how they support. That's why the, the gifts of, the, of, of the, the miraculous sign gifts, like speaking in tongues and different things, those ceased with the apostles. Now, if that's true, what's interesting to me is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, says knowledge would be done away with. Knowledge would vanish. And knowledge has not ceased. And I think the context of that passage, the context verse, is verse uh, 12 of, of 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And what I think Paul is saying is when that which is perfect has come is when we see Jesus Christ face to face in glory. That's what I think the apostles are referring to. Because if you think about that, when you see Jesus face to face, you're not going to need prophecy. You're not going to need tongues. You know, you know, knowledge, you're not going to need knowledge in the sense that we acquire knowledge today because he's right there. You can ask him anything you want. He, you're right in his presence. And then, of course, Paul, the, the point that Paul is getting across in that chapter is all these other things will pass away when, when, we, when we stand before the Lord Jesus in glory. All those other things pass away. Faith, hope, and love, man, they'll abide forever. That'll, that'll never cease in heaven. So that's one misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding that I think uh, some people struggle with is they say the gift of tongues is only a foreign language known to man. And they'll look at... Acts chapter 2, because if you read Acts chapter 2, certainly only foreign languages were mentioned, and they were understood by all these different pilgrims that were to, in Jerusalem that spoke different languages, and that is absolutely true in Acts chapter 2. However, in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1, Paul refers to the tongues of men and of angels, and I believe those are two different things that he's referring to. So, what can we know about the gift of tongues based on scriptures? First of all, the gift of tongues is a language that is unknown to the person uttering it unless an interpretation is given. The second thing that we can know from scriptures is that tongues is directed toward God, not toward people. And that's a key thing. In 1 Corinthians 14.2, Paul says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. So if you hear someone, TV evangelist or whatever, start preaching in tongues, I could just tell you by scriptures, based on scriptures, they misunderstand the gift of tongues as described in scriptures. If someone interprets the utterance of a tongue and the interpretation is directed to the listeners, that also is a misunderstanding of the gift as described in scriptures. I remember uh, I grew up in a, in a denomination that uh, believed that the gifts of the, the apostle or the gifts of the spirit, they had ceased with the apostles. And uh, so I was not, you know, very knowledgeable and I really wasn't uh, 
Bible scholar at the time either. And so I was biblically illiterate. But I remember attending a church. It was my first charismatic church that I ever attended. And uh, during that time, I remember people were, were speaking in tongues during the service. And it was orderly. It wasn't like everybody was doing it at the same time. It was orderly as, as, as Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians. But then someone gave, got up and gave the interpretation of the tongue. And it was this, my little children. And then they went into some kind of thing. And, and you know, again, I, was, I didn't know scriptures well enough. And I'm just, okay, that's, that's what that interpretation is. It wasn't until years later that I attended a Calvary Chapel and they were going through this passage of scripture that I discovered tongues is directed towards God. It's not directed towards people. So although that person was well-meaning, and I'm not saying they were a heretic or anything, they misunderstood what Paul says about the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of tongues, excuse me, the gift of tongues, is directed toward God. And the purpose of the gift of tongues is not to prove the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. That's another important thing. I'll give you another one of my experiences I met my beautiful wife, and uh, uh, we got married, and we, did, we traveled. We went out to California, where I was from, and then from there we had our honeymoon there, which wasn't much of a honeymoon for my wife. You can ask her about that, but um, we were at my parents' home. They made her cook. <laughs> but anyways, that's a long story. Um, anyway, on the way back, we decided just to, to travel and to visit her family at, uh, south of Minnesota, and so... Um, we ended up at one point visiting one of her uncles, and her uncle was a pastor of a very charismatic church, and uh, not a, it was kind of a to me anyways it was kind of a standoffish guy. And I remember the first thing he said to me is, "Do you speak in tongues?" And I said, "No." He never said anything to me the rest of that time we were there. I mean, it was just like I'm like, I guess that was the wrong answer, you know. I, and I felt like I was a second-class Christian. Again, late, years later, we were attending this charismatic church, and man, I'm like, man, I, I want to I wanna receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I remember meeting with the elders. They came to our house, two guys, and I prayed, and they, they prayed, and they discussed things, and then they said, okay, now that you've prayed, you, you should start speaking in tongues. And I'm like, uh, it's not happening. And they're like, well, you know, we'll pray some more. They were there for, I don't know, an hour or two hours. Nothing happened. And then eventually they got up. And I remember, I remember they're like, they were real quiet. And they're like looking at each other like, oh, man, this guy's a loser. And they walked out. <laughs> I remember feeling like a loser. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't mean to <coughs> cough and cry at the same time. I remember feeling like a loser. I'm like, man, I'm not even worthy of the gifts of the Spirit. That can happen. It wasn't until years later, I was listening to a Calvary Chapel pastor, and I keep saying Calvary Chapel. It's not like this is the, the end all of churches, but it happened to be I was listening to a Calvary Chapel Bible teacher, and he was sharing his experience about the gifts of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And through that teaching, I came to understand, you know, salvation do you feel like you're saved this morning? I tell you what, I rarely feel saved. <laughs> In fact, I, sometimes I feel just the opposite. I'm such a, such a bonehead sometimes. But I know by faith that because I've put my trust in Jesus Christ, I am saved. It's, it's, it's received by faith, and so I live it out. I walk by faith as a believer. 
I live my life as a Christian because I believe Scripture told me I'm saved. Well, it's the same thing with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's received by faith. It's not like all of a sudden I get this fuzzy feeling and I'm going to start speaking in a falsetto voice or something like that. It's not. It's received and it's lived out by faith. When I understood that, that just changed my whole perspective on the gifts of the Spirit. So it's not to prove that you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's not like, okay, you stand here and just start wiggling your tongue. Just start saying, you know, Shandala, he'll be coming on a Honda. Say it several times really fast, and pretty soon it's like kick-starting, you know, a motor. And pretty soon you'll be speaking. And that's not, that's not true. That's not true. It's also not to prove you are more spiritual than someone else that doesn't have the gift. I mean, think about it. Paul wrote to the book of, uh, to, to the church in Corinth. They were probably, out of all of the churches that Paul ministered to, the most charismatic church. All the gifts are ministering there, and yet they were the most carnal church that Paul ministered to. So it doesn't mean you're more spiritual than anybody else. What is the purpose of the gift of tongues then? Again, remember it's directed towards God. The purpose of the gift of tongues is to praise, thank and glorify God. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. What did they say? We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Hey, they were just praising God. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 17, Paul, again speaking about tongues, says, For you indeed give, you indeed give thanks, giving thanks through the gift of tongues. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentile believers in Acts chapter 10, verse 46, what does it say there? They heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That's what tongues is. According to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 15 through 17, the gift of tongues can take the form of praying to the Lord, singing to the Lord, blessing the Lord, and thanking the Lord. You know, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. But then he goes on to qualify that statement. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says, basically, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but not in the church gathering. My paraphrasing. Why? Because unless an interpretation of that unknown tongue is given, the people in the worship gathering are not edified. They can't say amen to what you're doing, what you're magnifying the Lord. They have no idea what you've said. So why would Paul say, I wish you all spoke in tongues? Why would he later say in that same chapter, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than y'all. He was from Texas, no, more than you all. (laughs) Why? Because I think Paul understood the personal value of the gift of tongues. The Bible says that the speaker, the person uttering the tongues, is edified. That word edified means built up. Well, wait a minute. How can I be built up or edified when I'm saying something? I don't even know what I'm saying. How can I be built up with that? Paul understood the value of being able to communicate praise, thankfulness, and prayers to the Lord beyond his ability to communicate or to articulate it with his natural, with his, with his faculties and with his mouth, with his speech. 
The gift of tongues bypasses my understanding. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. And I know some believers are not comfortable with the idea, hey, I'm speaking to God and I'm saying things that I don't even know what I'm saying or I'm praying things that I'm not even, I don't even know what I'm praying or I'm singing and I don't understand it intuitively. Man, that's not for me. I have a question that I want you to just to ponder. How many times as you as a believer came to somebody who's maybe they just lost a loved one or, you know, maybe they've, they've just had some kind of a tragedy in their lives and they're a believer and you know, they're a believer. How many times have you quoted this verse or maybe you've received encouragement from this verse, Philippians four, verse seven, and the peace of God, which passes or excuse me, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. How many times has that been a comfort to you? You know, I've gone through tragedy, and I'm sure everyone in this room has had some kind of a tragedy or some kind of a loss in their lives. I'm so thankful for the peace of God. Man, in a time of crisis, in times of loss, when I am full of fear, where there's a tragedy, that peace of God just floods my soul. And you know what? I can't describe it to you. I can't say, well, this is what it is, and this is what it's based on, and I can't articulate it. But it's real, and it's there, and it's my lifeline, and, and I thrive. I, I survive and I thrive on God's peace. But I can't articulate it to you. I can't define it. It's just there. And so it is with the gift of tongues. I cannot define it unless the Spirit gives interpretation, and that has happened before. But in those times when my heart is overwhelmed with joy or thankful, or I would just want to bless the Lord. And, and it's, it's like, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm able to communicate with my Lord in a way that I can't define to you this morning. I can't say, well, this is what I'm saying, because I don't know, unless an interpretation is given. But I can tell you this, it's a blessing, and it edifies me in my own prayer life, in my own time with the Lord. Man, it's a blessing. It's, it's my lifeline, as well as God's peace. So, I hate when I do that. <laughs> Put my thumb down and there goes my notes. <laughs> Give me a second here. This is not a high-tech church. If you're looking for a high-tech church, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> All right, here we are, back to where I was speaking about. And so here's this event that occurs. And the people there celebrating Pentecost, like, what is going on? And they all rush together to find out what's going on. And many of them spoke foreign languages. And it says, so all foreigners present heard them speaking in their own tongues the wonderful works of God. Verse 12, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, and there's always going to be those others, were mocking, saying they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this thing happens and there's two responses from the crowd. Some are perplexed. Man, what in the world is going on? Others are mocking and they cry, ah, oh, those guys are just drunk. They're just, they're just, man, they're a little over the edge there, you know. Notice that Peter stands, it says Peter stand, stood up with the 11. In other words, he's representing the rest of the apostles. That is amazing in and of itself. Because if you'll recall, Peter was the guy, the big fisherman, who cowered before a servant girl there when Jesus was being crucified, or when he was arrested, I should say. And now he's standing up with boldness before, and we find out there's thousands of people, multiple thousands. He's standing up with boldness before thousands of people who are questioning and people who are mocking. That'd be a tough crowd. But that is exactly what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Man, boom, there it is. His words came true. And so Peter says to them, to the mockers anyways, these guys are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. He didn't say, well, you know, they're not drunk with wine, but man, they're drunk with the Holy Spirit. You know, he didn't say that, okay? You, you, you got to understand that. That's a misunderstanding of the gift of tongues also. I remember watching this TV show program late at night. I don't know how long ago it was. I don't even remember who the guy was, but him and these other guys were giggling on the TV, and they were toking the Spirit. So they were oh, getting high on the Spirit, you know, and they were acting all drunk and everything. I'm like, what a blasphemy. That's blasphemy, man. That's, that's just... Anyways, Paul, Peter didn't say, hey, they're, they're just, you know, drunk with the Spirit. He didn't say that. He said they're not drunk with wine. In other words, a misunderstanding of the gifts of the Spirit is, you know, hey, when the Spirit takes over, I just lose control. Man, I, I don't know what I'm doing. It's just the Spirit's taking control over me. Did you notice in this narration that when Paul stood up, there's no more mention of the tongues? They ceased at that point. They stopped at that point. And Peter got up and started preaching the gospel because the Holy Spirit was speaking through Peter. And there's not this confusion going on. The Bible says God is not the author of confusion. And so Peter says to them, basically in answer to whatever could this be, he says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I love that. He says, hey, you know what you're seeing, what you're witnessing? Hey, this is what the Bible says about it. You know, anything that we do in our church or that you do in your own personal life, you should be able to say, you know, the reason why I do this is because I, I read it here in scriptures. Now, to be fair, 
There are some people that take some scriptures and they go, hey, see this? Man, I'm doing this thing. Because look at the verse. It says, uh, when they take up serpents and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And so, hey, we're going to have a snake, you know, we're going to handle some rattlesnakes after church today and drink some arsenic. Praise the Lord, you know. We keep having to invite more people because they, they're there once and then they're gone, you know. <laughs> I, I know I've shared this story before, but there's enough new people I've got to share this story. We used to meet out years ago uh, out at a farm out in uh, Viola when we were first starting out as a church. And uh, we had a Sunday, or excuse me, we had a Wednesday evening service. And I remember one time in the winter, there was this guy from Chicago that kept calling me. He was in town and he wanted money. And I kept kind of putting him off, but he kept calling. It's not one of those guys that would just like, okay, and then they cuss you out. And then they say, oh, your Christians are all alike. This guy kept calling me. I need some money, man. So I said, okay, I tell you what. I said, I'll pick you up. I'm going to take you to our Bible study. And after Bible study, I'll take you to the grocery store and I'll buy you whatever groceries you need. Oh, that's cool, man. So I picked him up. Really talkative guy from Chicago. Really talkative guy. And we're starting driving. Now, this is in the wintertime. It's getting dark. And we're driving out on Viola Road. And there's not a whole lot of streetlights. There's not even not a lot of farms, right? As we're going, it's getting darker. And this guy's getting quieter. He's like, you know, <laughs> he was of a different color than me. So I think maybe he was a little bit like worried or something, you know, because I'm like, here's this guy driving me out in the middle of the sticks. You know, I just could read his mind that way. And we, we get to this one place and we start pulling up to the drive. And it's a long drive. You can see lights at the end of the place where we met. And I stopped and I turned to him. I said, you're not afraid of snakes, are you? <laughs> and he went, <laughs> I said, I'm just kidding. We don't do that here. <laughs> I'm not a very nice guy sometimes. Anyways. This is my rule of thumb. For anything that we do here at Calvary Chapel, anything I do in my own personal life, when someone confronts me or approaches me and says, hey, check out this new thing, this is what I apply to it. First of all, did Jesus teach about it? Did he talk about it? Did he mention it in the Gospels? Do you see him setting an example of it in his life? If you can say yes to that, okay, that's, that's one, one okay. The next thing I go to, and I, and I literally do this with different things. So if Jesus, yeah, Jesus uh, talked about it or set an example about it. Okay, now do you see it in the church of Acts? Do you see the apostles doing it now in the book of Acts? And if you can say yes, yeah, Jesus talked about it and we see, the, the, we see it in the book of Acts. Okay, that's two out of three. The final question is, do the apostles expound on it in their epistles? Now, if two of the answers are yes and one of them is no, I'm a little suspect. That's just me. I'm a little bit suspect. If none of them are answered, I'm like, forget it. I don't even want to hear what you have to say. But if all three questions, if you can answer three, I can think, I think it's, it's, it could be legitimate. Not so that it is, but I, I think it could be legitimate. Listen, if you apply that in your own life, you can eliminate all the goofy stuff that you hear about that are nowadays people are doing. And they're doing some goofy things out there in the name of the Lord. But if you use that criteria, you can kind of weed through a lot of it. I, I literally do that when I hear about new things. I, I, I run through that thing and, and examine it. If they're all yes, I'm like, okay, then I, I want to hear about it. Peter says, <clears throat> this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And of course, he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, uh, the first half of verse 32. He doesn't even finish verse 32. So what was spoken 
by the prophet Joel. And of course he quotes it here, you can read it there. He's talking about the pouring out of God's spirit on all flesh. Again, if you go to the old covenant, under the old covenant, the spirit did fill people. The spirit fell on people. We can read that Saul, David, different people. You can read scriptures. Uh, who's that strong guy? Not Hercules, Samson. You know, the spirit came upon him. And, and so you read about that in the Old Testament under the old covenant, but it only came upon individuals. It was sporadic and it was temporary. In fact, remember when David sinned against you know, sinned against the Lord with Bathsheba, and he wrote that one psalm, and that psalm is a beautiful worship psalm. We, we sing it here at church sometimes. And David at one point says, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That was a real concern of David's. I love that worship song, so don't like, you know, people that do worship, like, oh boy, we can't do that. No, 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 I love that worship song. It's a prayer of my heart when I've, when I've sinned against the Lord and I have to repent. That's a prayer of my heart. But the reality of a New Testament believer Holy Spirit never leaves you, okay? He's a sign and a seal of your salvation. He's not going to, oh, you blew it, I'm out of here. Now, you may grieve the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we do that. But he'll never leave you. He doesn't depart a born-again believer in Christ. So on this day recorded in Acts, the people witnessed the Holy Spirit being poured out on ordinary men and women gathered in that place. It's like there's 120 believers, men and women, and they're all speaking in tongues. They're, the Holy Spirit's poured out on all of them. And Joel's prophecy is mainly about the last return of Christ. He, you know, he talks about the wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, uh, the moon turning to blood. He doesn't mention flames of fire on people's heads and you know, the sound. Of, he doesn't mention that, but he mentions all this stuff in Joel and they will find their complete fulfillment during the great tribulation. What is Paul, what is, what is, what was Joel prophesying or talking about and that Peter is quoting was the announcement of a new age, which we know today as the church age. And it's the last days, the age of the last days. It began with Pentecost and it continues. Now, we're, I think we're in the last of the last days, but it began with Pentecost. You know, what's interesting to me, and again, this is just me, I hear a lot of people lately quoting Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32, and they say this is why there is an increase in dreams and visions today, as, as if it's a new thing. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't occur, but it's like all of a sudden it's like our generation is experiencing this in, in, in an amazing way. And yet, when you look in the book of Pentecost, what happens? Man, Paul, he says he sees visions. The Lord appears to him, an angel appears to him. It happens several times there where the apostles have dreams and visions to guide them. So this is not a new phenomenon to our generation. It's not a new thing. And some people kind of portray it as it is. Listen, the reason why I say this, and I think this is important, the Bible warns in the last days that spiritual deception will grow and many people are going to be deceived. And, you know, again, if I were applying the, the whole thing in scriptures, does, does, does Jesus talk about it? Yeah, I, I think you can make a case for that. Do we see in the book of Acts? Definitely. Um, did any of the apostles expound on dreams and visions? What do you do with dreams and visions? Uh, you know, Paul does mention it. But you know when he mentions it? It's a warning. 
It's not like, well, this is how you interpret dreams. He, said this, he says this, Galatians 1, verses 6 through 8. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not yet another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert, and that means to twist or to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, man, let him be accursed. And he'll say that twice. Let him be accursed. Listen, if someone's dream or vision doesn't match up with Jesus' teaching, the example maybe that he gave, or the example that you see in the book of Acts, or the teachings of the apostles, ignore it. And I say not even ignore it. Flee from it. Don't even have nothing to do with it. Because there's a lot of spiritual deception out there right now. Again, that's just me. That's one of my hobby horses or one of my soapboxes I get. Listen, if the Holy Spirit, excuse me, the Holy Spirit led Peter to quote Joel 2.28 to the first half of verse 32. And you might say, well, yeah, but some of those things didn't occur. What's interesting to me, verse 28 and the first half of verse 32, I think, are bookends. I had a really cool graphic, but I can't show it to you guys. Our bookends that comprise the season that we call the day of the Lord. And, and Peter and the apostles thought that Jesus could return in their lifetime. Rightly so. Rightly so. There was, there was nothing preventing Jesus returning during their lifetime. Same with our lifetime. That first bookend, verse 28, Joel, Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now you go back and you think about the Feast of Pentecost. It was a celebration, like I mentioned earlier, for Jews, for males, females, master servants, Levites, fatherless widows, even strangers, whoever dwelt in Israel. And here at this first Pentecost celebration, of course, after Christ's ascension, the Spirit is being poured out on ordinary men and women. And it continues today. And it will continue until the end of the day of the Lord when he returns for his church. It's going to continue throughout it was celebrated with the two loaves of unleavened bread symbol i mentioned earlier symbolizing the church comprised of both jew and gentiles it would be a number of years actually i don't know how many but it would be a number of years until the events that are recorded in acts chapter 10 take place and that's when the holy spirit will be poured out on the gentiles as well but this group of 120 believers, different men, women, who knows what all walks of life they were, they were gathered there. They're the first fruits of a march, much greater harvest. So there's the one bookend on this side. I have to think opposite because you're looking over here. So it's on that side. The other bookend on this side is the first half of verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter preaches this to the crowd. We'll look at that next week. And the crowd responds. And many people are saved that day. In fact, 3,000 are saved that day. It was true on that first Pentecost after Christ's ascension, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
and it will continue. It's true today in our generation. In fact, that's why we're doing, well, that's why our church is taking part in the God Loves You Tour. Because we're hoping and praying and we're, we're working towards that, trying to see as many people as possible call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Man, that, that's why we're here. That's our purpose in life, is to glorify the Lord. And that's going to continue until the consummation of the day of the Lord, when he returns. We're going to stop right there. We'll pick up the rest of, of Acts chapter 2 and take a deep dive into Peter's sermon there and what happens with the church there. I'm excited about that. Why don't we go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer? I'll have the worship team come on up. Today we celebrate communion and uh, kind of a fitting thing, thinking about what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're going to be remembering his sacrifice for our sins. And it's open to anyone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're invited to come to the table and partake of communion. The, the bread symbolizes his body, which was broken for us. The cracker, I should say. The juice, it symbolizes his blood, which is shed for our sins. And, I, you know, I think about that, what, what uh, Peter quoted. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, how are we saved? We, 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 we call out to the Lord. We, we say, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I ask that you'd forgive me of my sins and that you would cleanse me and come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. That's what, that's what repenting. And then, of course, you're praying and saying, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to turn away from this sin. I, I want to repent. And that means just turning away from it. But you know what I love about that? And we, I mention this frequently when we do communion. The blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is just wine. It doesn't turn to blood. I'm sorry if you think that, but it doesn't. It's, just, it's, just, it's not even wine. It's juice. Um, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. We sing this old song, there's power in the blood. That blood of Christ that was shed 2,000 years ago, it still cleanses sin. It'll still wash away your and my sin today. I mean, that's how powerful the blood of Christ, that's how beautiful his sacrifice was for our sins. It still cleanses even to this day. Let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer.